good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, turn to Matthew chapter 1, if you would. I'd appreciate that. Matthew chapter 1. We are continuing our series, Written So That You May Believe. Uh, it's one of those things that we're, we're taking the, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're, we're going through them to, to get a big picture from the snapshots that we have from each account. Uh, and each account is written by a certain person with a certain reason or certain audience in mind. And as we look at those accounts, we can glean something from them. But as we put them all together and see what we're going to see is, is a, more, a bigger picture, a better picture of the life and work of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's what this is all about. And uh, one of the things that needs to become very clear, and hopefully it's very clear to you, especially in our church, is that it's all about Jesus. Uh, there's, there's nothing else that it's about. It's about Jesus. And when you look at the scriptures, it's all about Jesus. And one of the things today, we're, 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 this is the third sermon. So let's just backtrack a little bit. Uh, the first message was called An Orderly Account. And we started in Luke chapter 1, and we, look, we saw how Luke uh, tried to endeavor to, to put together an orderly account with eyewitness testimony that, that we could see what happened and, and we, we could know from the depths of, of the scriptures and the depths of the accounts uh, who Jesus is. And we talked about the overall theme being found in John 20, and that verse says, but these are written, right? The accounts of Christ are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and then by, by believing, you might have life in his name. Right? Th this is where we're heading. We want to see the picture of Jesus so that we can see Jesus, believe in Jesus, and have life in Jesus Christ. Amen? That, that's the goal of Scripture. So anything short of that is not, it, it, it's, we're, we're being cut short, right? We, we don't have what we really need. So today, um, we're, we're going to continue on. Uh, but last week, so we had the orderly account from Luke 1, uh, written because, so we can believe, and then Last week, we talked about the greatness of Christ. That was the sermon title, The Greatness of Christ. And we looked at John chapter 1. So we had Luke 1, went to John chapter 1, and we saw the, the pre-existence of Christ and the eternal nature of the Son of God. We talked about the Trinity, that there's, in fact, one God who is in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are co-equal and united together as God, as one God. That the Son, is not, although He's not the Father and not the Spirit, He is God and has every attribute of God that the Father and Spirit have also. They are eternally, equally God. And that's one of those things I mentioned last week. This stuff is going to kind of blow our mind a little bit, and that's okay. We will look at the Scriptures and let the Scriptures speak for themselves and, and let them inform our hearts and the Spirit inform our hearts of who Christ is. But listen, you and I will never fully understand God, and that's okay. We need to be okay with that. And I know sometimes, like, I'm not okay with that. I say that. I'm like, I'm not okay with that. But if I was to truly, fully understand God, then God would no longer be a mystery and God would no longer be God. Just in the very nature that he's God means I don't quite get it. And that's okay. But we, we certainly don't want to go on a track that, of something that is not. And, and Bubba, as he, as he presented today in Sunday school, there's so many other schools of thought and religions and cults and, and other, other groups that are bringing up who Christ is not. And, and believing that and trying to aspire to believe that and to spread that. Uh, and what we have is the scriptures, and we, we need to believe who Christ has said he is and who the scriptures claim him to be. This is our authority, as he talked about uh, in Sunday school. If, if you've missed Sunday school, by the way, uh, or if you've missed any of the sermons, all this stuff is available online. Uh, the, the past three, three Sundays, we have not only uh, recorded the audio version of the sermon and, and done a video like normal, we've done uh, an audio and a video of the uh, of the Sunday school as well. So you can go sometime this week, tomorrow or Tuesday, it gets uploaded and, and you can go watch that again and check it out. Thank you, by the way. If you are a, a children's Sunday school teacher, 
God bless you. Thank you so much. Because, listen, we, we canceled all of adult Sunday school and youth Sunday school and brought them all in here. But we continued with children's Sunday school. So it's great to have the children in their Sunday school classes. I mean, the words, the words were going over my head. Were they going over your head, right? I mean, it's, it's tough stuff. My kids were in Sunday school with their Sunday school teacher who missed out on this. And uh, I, I just am thank, thankful for you and encourage you to go uh, listen and, and glean from uh, online, online content. So t- uh, last week was the greatness of Christ. Uh, out of John 1, and, and today we see uh, the humanity of Christ. We're looking at the humanity of Christ. And, and the beautiful thing about the, the Trinity is that there's three in one, and we don't quite get that, and there's a mystery. Uh, but we also see that there's, there's kind of this mystery going on between God in the flesh, and is God really God when it comes to being in the flesh, or is God now just man? Or are there little bits of both, and what does that look like? Um, what Scripture would teach, and, and as we reconcile Scripture and contextualize Scripture, what it teaches is that Jesus Christ in the flesh, God in the flesh, was both fully God and both fully man. And if he, he wasn't fully God and fully man, the cross and resurrection would probably not have happened or would be meaningless for us. So we're going to take a look at that today because that is so important for us to understand that God just didn't say, okay, I'll give up being God and I'll go serve and, and die. He's like, I, God, will stoop and and humiliate or humble myself to a level of lowliness as a man so that I can die. And because I'm God, not only will I die, I will rise from the dead again. So such an important aspect of this. We cannot go on thinking or believing that, well, Jesus wasn't quite all God or wasn't quite all man. There was some kind of superhero thing going on there. It, it, was, it was not that. It was fully God and fully man. So we're going to look at the humanity of Christ today because last week we talked about Jesus being divine, pre-existent, co-equal with the Father. And now how do we add that in with, with this great condescension? Actually, Bubba mentioned this term earlier because he, he said, I don't mean to put, you know, condescend you or put you down. And that's how we use that term, right? Condescension, like I'm going to put you down. Condescension, the great condescension of God in the flesh and incarnate was that God stooped down, lowered himself into humanity. This is what we're going to be talking about today, the great condescension. And who was this that came into humanity. So we're in Matthew chapter 1. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to change things up a little bit. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, for your great love for us. We, God, we are nothing without you. We're nothing without the atoning sacrifice of God the Son, fully God, fully man. And we are thankful that in his grace and mercy and humility, He went to the cross willingly on our behalf that we might have life through him. So God, today as we look to your word, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to be receptive to its truth. God, that we wouldn't insist on our own way, our own will, that we would humble ourselves and quiet our own agenda so we can see you clearly. We ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, convict us of sin and you would move us to a place of obedience that we would be conformed into the image of the Son, Jesus Christ. We'd look more and more like Him to the world around us. That as people look at our lives, they would see Jesus. And that they would believe and have life in His name. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, typically, this is, I'm kind of breaking a couple rules today that I, I don't like to break. One is I like to read the full passage so we can, we can just hear it and get it and, and love it and appreciate it for what it is. Today, there are two, three full passages. There's the Matthew 1 account from 1 through 17. 
There's the Luke chapter 3 account from verses 23 through 38. And there's the Philippians chapter 2 account from uh, verse 5 through verse 8. There's a, there's a lot to talk about today. And, and I, I, so one rule is I, I typically read that passage first and then we break it down, right? I'm not going to do that with the first two passages today. We will do that with the second passage, but not with the first two. And that breaks a second rule. That if you look at what this is, this is a list of names. It's the lineage of Jesus, the ancestry. It is the part that we always skip over in the Bible because we find it too mundane to read the names. Not just mundane, we, we look at it and say, I don't know how to pronounce that name. Who is this person? And you just say, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, so da 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 Jesus. And that's how we end the text, right? And, and, and listen, I don't, I don't think that's fair. If you were their name, and God included you in the book, you'd be like, yeah, read my name. Right? And so we want to, so here's what I'd encourage you to do. Go home and read it. With your family, read it, give it the credit for what it's due. Um, again, if you don't know how to pronounce names, remember the key trick to pronouncing things in the Bible, speed and confidence. Speed and confidence. <laughs> Nobody is going to question you if it's speed and, well, someone will. Someone that actually knows the name, so. But I do want to look at verse 1, and we'll look at a couple different uh, verses in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, it, the title of today's sermon is The Humanity of Christ, and, and number one, we see the humanity of Christ in his lineage, in his lineage or his ancestry. So we're going to see the humanity of Christ there. That's number one. That's where we are today. There's only two points. The second point has a few subpoints underneath it, headings under it, that we'll check out in more detail. So let's look at the lineage. Look at verse 1. Matthew starts out, he says, The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Then he goes into this long lineage and shows how he is the son of David and son of Abraham. Now, Matthew, remember, when we talk about the scriptures, we talk about the different gospels. We have to take into account who this person is that's writing it, kind of what's their history and background, and who they might be writing it to, and for what reason. Right? Matthew is, is, a, is writing to a Jewish, Jewish population who, who needs to understand the Messiah in, in those terms. And, and what's interesting with Matthew, and, and as opposed to Luke, right? Matthew, we see the genealogy, the lineage of Christ, in verse 1, chapter 1. Luke presents it in chapter 3, like verse 20-something, right? It's like, oh, it's, it'll, I'll get to it. And there's a reason for this. I think there's a reason that we'll see both of these things. For, for Matthew, he comes to these Jews and says, listen, let's start with first things first. Let's get the legal stuff out of the way. Jesus is the Messiah. He has every right, legal right to the throne because he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this Jewish audience is, is wondering, like, how does he add up? How, how is he? Because that's the question they ask. Is he the son of David? Is he, is he the seed of, seed of Abraham? Because those are the covenants that were given to God's people. So Jewish people were holding on to the, the Abrahamic covenant, saying that there would be a, a Messiah that would, and, and that Abraham, the seed of Abraham, would, would be as numerous as the, as the shore or the, or the sand on the shore. Right? There's Abrahamic covenant. Before that, we see Genesis 3, which Bubba alluded to during Sunday school, where, where we see the fall, the curse of man, but then the promise that he would provide through the seed of a woman to crush Satan once and for all. And that's what we have, the Abrahamic covenant re-ratifies that. We see the Davidic covenant re-ratify that. We see lots of places in Scripture where that is bolstered and says, this is the standard. So, so Jewish believers, they're, they're like, yeah, I, let's just prove it. Let's start with the legal stuff. Don't even, I don't want to hear any stories, any accounts, any parables. Prove it. So it's a legal claim. And, and Matthew sets out that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has the legal claim to the throne. And look what he mentions. He says the first, the first verse, he writes, this is the historical record. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you see, verse 2 says, Abraham fathered Isaac. So there's Abraham's name. It goes all the way down, and going backwards in time, right? I'm sorry, going down in time. Uh, Abraham going forward in time. 
down to verse 6, and then it says, Jesse fathered David, right? King David. Then King David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. So it goes on, this lineage continues. Then all the way down to verse 16, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So he's laying out that claim. Listen, Jesus is here. And when he's writing this, Jesus is already gone. Jesus was here. This is who he claimed he was. He has the right, the legal claim to the throne. He is the Messiah. And for them, it's, he's coming to rule. He's coming to reign. Now, that, that's important. That legal claim is important because everything else behind, after this doesn't really matter if there's no legal claim. Right? And oftentimes, the, the Pharisees kept pushing aside and say, saying, no, 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 Jesus isn't who he said he is. In fact, he said he was God and he could forgive sins. They asked him, are you, are you God? Yes, I am. They, well, he, they crucified him because of blasphemy, right? He said he was God. Well, he is. He has the legal right to the throne as the Son of God as well. Let's go to Ma- uh, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. I, um, actually, go to Luke 1. Just Luke 1, 1. Interesting here. So we switch gears to Luke. Luke's record of the genealogy is found in chapter 3, not in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Luke in the beginning says, hey, I want to give you an orderly account. I want to make sure you understand about the things that are present. In fact, I'll read that. He says, I, I write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which have been instructed. Well, these things instructed have been about Jesus and about redemption and about how we can be forgiven and, and have life in Christ's name. But there's a, a wonderful thing happening between chapter 1 and then the genealogy of Christ. There's this precious gem that is revealed in Jesus. And so you, you go down to the headings here. You see Gabriel coming to predict John's birth. Now, this is John the baptizer, right, who is going to be the forerunner and the frontrunner of Jesus and proclaims and makes way the uh, path in the desert. Then, then you have Mary visits, uh, go back here, uh, meanwhile, Zechariah. So then Gabriel predicts Jesus' birth in, tw- in verse 26. So there's, now we have John's birth coming up, we have Jesus' birth. We're talking about the story and the special, unique thing that's happening there. Then you have Mary's song and how she sings and worships God. And then you have Mary's visit to Elizabeth and Elizabeth and her interaction and the baby inside Elizabeth leaping in the womb, like knowing, I know this is the Son of God. Like there's a special thing happening. There's this buildup happening. And it's very, very human, right? It was, came from divine, but it's very, very relational, very, very human, very, very like person to person. And it's unique and special. And then you have, Mary's, Mary, oh, you have Mary's song, you have Elizabeth's song, Mary's song. Then you have the birth and naming of John. So we, we saw he was going to be born and, and you know, back, back in the Old Testament prophesied that and here he is. And now we have, he's born and here's his name. And, and Ze- then we have Zechariah's song or prophecy. And then, then after that, we see the birth of Jesus. So this is Christmas time now, right? And how, what a better, better way to start a book than Christmas. And we have Jesus, the birth of Jesus there, and the shepherds and the angels proclaiming who he is. And, and then he, he's growing. And um, he, so the, then, then he's presented at the temple. Uh, then you have si, uh, Simeon's prophetic praise and Anna's testimony and song. And then the family returns to Nazareth. So all this big hoopla of, of, of the initial part of the book tells this wonderful story of the birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. And Luke, again, is writing to an audience. Uh, Jews are reading this and seeing this, but there are definitely, they're, they're a Hellenistic Greek type of culture who, who's looking at the story and, and it's unpacking and seeing how this fits in humanity because they want it to fit in humanity. And, and we talked about it the first week when he writes this orderly account. He wants us to understand that Jesus was not just for the Jews in Israel. He was for everybody. He was for everybody, right? These things are written that you might believe. Anyone can believe. And by believing, you'd have life in his name. So he presents it to everybody. Now, I want you to notice something. If you, We're in chapter 3 now. Um, we have Jesus. He grew up. 
and wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Uh, and then we, then we start into his early ministry and calling of the disciples. And then if you look at verse 21 of chapter 3, aren't you glad I didn't read this all? Right? <laughs> verse 21 of chapter 3. When all of the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. As he was praying, heaven opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in the physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. I take delight in you. Now, I want to stop there for a minute. Remember, we talked about this last week. This is an instance where we, we, we set aside any modalistic idea of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that he's, he, he's like Superman, goes into the phone booth, changes into something else, comes out, and hey, I'm the Holy Spirit, and then goes back in and changes, right? In this instance in Scripture, we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit present at the same time and same place in the universe. And we can see it all happen, right? Jesus is being baptized. The Son is being baptized. The, the heavens open and the, the dove is descended. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. So Holy Spirit is there. Jesus is being baptized. And the Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Right? Take delight in him. Right? Different accounts. What, what's here, this, to me, this sets up this genealogy. And, and, and as I read this and, and thought through the commentary on this, um, it's, this genealogy is kind of backwards. Like, like Matthew's starts from way back and comes to present. Right? That seems like, oh yeah, that's my family tree. That's how it goes. It grows up or comes forward in time. Luke presents it the opposite. He starts with Jesus and goes backwards in time. And, and what was interestingly uh, pointed out, and, and maybe this was what happened, I, I would tend to think it is. You have, you have this amazing, beautiful story, this beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, right? His, his announcement, his birth, his, his presentation in the temple, ultimately to his baptism. There's this glorious thing happening with Jesus. And then there's the culmination at the end of that, that passage there, before 23, he says he's getting baptized, and God says, this is what? This is my son. Pretty bold statement. And, and although the genealogy in my Bible and yours starts at verse 23, I think it starts there. With a father saying, this is my son. We can talk about genealogies all day long, but this is my son. And then we say, well, what, what difference does that make? Why is that important? Then you know, it goes on, because most people thought Joseph was Jesus' son, right? Verse number 23, as he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph. Why? Because people were freaked out about this immaculate conception, about this, how, did, how could you be conceived of the Holy Spirit and be born of this virgin? It doesn't make sense, right, unless there's divine interaction going on here, which we know there is. But it's easier for people to think, well, he's just the son of Joseph. Mary and Joseph are his mom and dad. There's his brothers and sisters. He's part of the family. And, and we almost ultra-humanize Jesus to the point of he's just a man that walked the earth. Most people would say, oh, yeah, Jesus was a man. He's a historical figure. He's a good teacher. He taught some good things. And we talked about that last week, how dangerous that is. And for us, it's very dangerous for us to just ultra-humanize Jesus and not have Jesus hold on to any divinity at all. That he was born by the power of the Holy Spirit through a virgin, not of human will or flesh, but of God. He was born of God, begotten of God the Father. That he is God Almighty in the form of the Son in the flesh, and he's fully God and fully man presented to us, given to us. So it starts out, and I, I think this, it's interesting how it's situated now. Why does it go from Jesus to Adam? And it goes all the way to Adam, not just back to Father Abraham. It goes back to Adam. Who's Adam? The Son of God. The first, like he's the first creation Son of God. The only other Son of God mentioned in Luke here is Adam, 
Otherwise, it's Jesus. So we get this picture that, well, the Father speaking out loud, verbally, at Jesus' baptism, this is my Son. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it's situated brilliantly here as it goes through. Then it goes backwards in time. And it hits Abraham. It shows David there. And it goes all the way back, uh, verse 38 of chapter 3. Son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. It goes all the way back to the first man. And, and here's what, again, Luke is doing in this. In the, he, see, if he went to Abraham, okay, yeah, we, we get the Jews believe Abraham's, the covenant of Abraham and David's seed, all, all that stuff, it's, it's all good, whatever. But when you go to Adam, everyone understands Adam, that's the first man. This is the first man of, of humanity. It's not just this, this group of people that ended up having a covenant and special relationship with God. Adam was the first human of humanity. So while, while Matthew points to a very legal claim that Jesus has to the throne of David as the Messiah in the house and line of David, Luke is, is yes, he's pointing that out, but he makes the point that Jesus is the Son of God given to us for all humanity. For all humanity. So while Matthew has a legal claim, Jesus and Luke has this physical claim and presence to be the Savior of all of humanity. Interesting, inter- like the, the, yeah, it's interesting here. Look at this. Look at, uh, you see the baptism placement? This is my son. It goes right into the genealogy of Jesus. Then you go all the way through, and it's almost like it gets darker and darker and darker as it goes to the very last point where it's, who is it? Adam. And at the end of this passage in, in verse, or chapter 3, we go to chapter 4, and what do we see here? Where is it situated? Right before the temptation of, of, of Satan to Jesus in the wilderness. So if you situate and see why that was maybe backwards, you see this beautiful story coming, coming to life in Jesus and the announcement of John and, and then the birth of John and birth of Jesus. And you see this, the dedication of him, and he grows up in wisdom, and he picks some disciples, and he gets baptized. There's this huge, brilliant thing. Why does it have to be so brilliant? Because so long ago, it was so dark. It was so dark. And Jesus has come as, to be the light. This is the Son of God for all humanity. Beautiful, beautiful depiction. There's, there's many different um, explanations also of this lineage. And I want us to understand that. Like there, There's not just one. Last year, during Christmas time, we talked about uh, the lineage of Christ. And I, I had this had people come up, and we kind of made a family tree and showed how it worked. Um, some would think, and I kind of lean this way, although it's, it's either way it goes, we can't try and make total reconciled sense of the lineage of Christ. Some of the names might overlap, some of them might not. Um, why is Joseph, you know, the son of so-and-so in one verse and so, son of so-and-so in the other? There's so many legal traditions there. There's so many uh, Leverite marriage traditions where, you know, my brother dies and his wife's still alive. I, I have a responsibility to perpetuate his line and marry his wife, and then those kids are his, but they're mine. Who am I? Am I? Is Joseph, as a stepdad, has a legal right to still be the father of Jesus? All of those things play into it and, and, and kind of can convolute it. But for us, we see that there's a legal claim and a physical claim as a man born into time for all humanity. That's, that's the crux of it all. But I do want to mention that the, there's a, a possibility that Luke's genealogy may be a little deviation from Matthew's in the sense of going, Matthew's would go through Joseph and that possibly Luke's might go through Mary. This might be actually Mary's genealogy. And you see right after David in Luke's, in Luke's gospel, uh, he, he goes with Nathan. And, and in Matthew's gospel, he goes from David to Solomon. So we have David to Solomon and David to Nathan. Well, out of Solomon's line comes uh, King Jeconiah, who 
who was cursed, and there was this legal blood claim that you could not be the king on the throne after him. After, after Jeconiah, there was no king that would be in his line that would be able to fit on the, sit on the throne. Some would say that curse was re, re, refuted later on, and, and, and there's a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of things you could, places you could go. But if, if that's true, that there was a curse that remained, and that through Solomon you couldn't have a, really a, a physical like blood claim on the throne, well, guess what? If it's Mary's, if it's Mary's genealogy, it goes around, because it goes through Nathan, it goes around Jeconiah and ends up being the legal and the blood claim to the throne still. Really amazing, the historical record of that. And, and certainly they had this history all scrolled up, and they, they could see it, and they could double-check it. That was something they could do as well. Um, that was something to be thought of, too. It, it should be noted that when Jesus offered himself to Israel as the Messiah, uh, his claim to the Davidic descent was never challenged because his ancestry could be tra- traced. They, they could see, oh, yeah, you're, you're of the line of David. They went to Nazareth, right, or, or sorry, Bethlehem, because they were the house and line of David, so they were going to go to register. It's all traced and traceable, and they kept records of that. So it was never refuted that he was of the line. They just over-human- or, uh, over- overhumanized Jesus and said, well, you're just a man. We know where you come from. Your dad's Joseph and your mom's Mary. Uh, I was born of God. He is God in the flesh, and that's why they put him on the cross. So... Uh, Ultimately, you see the humanity of Christ in his lineage. And, and both Luke and Matthew say, listen, here's a, a human being born in, in a miraculous way. And he is not only fulfilling his role legally as the, as the, king, of the king on the throne of David and, and seed of Abraham, he is a physical, bodily God in the flesh who is for all of humanity since the curse of sin through Adam. Okay, that's, that's number one. Let's go to number two. We see the idea of the humanity of Christ, so we saw it in his, in his lineage, and now we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the humanity of Christ in his humility. Humanity in humility. And we're going to look at a, a few different ways uh, uh, to see that. Go to Philippians with me, chapter, Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I will go ahead and read this passage, and then we will uh, break it apart. Philippians chapter 2, we'll begin in verse Five. So we're moving away from the passages about Christ's ancestry, right, and, and his humanity through his ancestry, um, and, and looking at this beautiful picture of, again, the, this word, the condescension of God, when God came down, when God came near, when, when God became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. What does it mean? What does that look like? Uh, it's one of the greatest miracles of Christianity. And again, these are profound, profound mysteries as well. We can, we can go as far as we can go and we have to have faith in the rest. We, we trust what the Word says. What we don't do is take what the Word says and say, well, it must not mean that because I can't see the rest. We still have to take the Word for what the Word is and what God has revealed it to be. So in the, in the simple but most profound way, Paul describes this stooping, this lowering of the second person of the Trinity to be born, that is Jesus' the Son, to be born, to live, and to die in human form in order for, to provide redemption for fallen mankind. Um, now, although it, it, it describes the incarnation in a beautiful way, Paul wrote this to the Philippians as a, as a model, as an example. He says, hey, I'm going to show you this profound gem of, of the humility of Jesus. And by the way, your attitude should be the same as his. He says that you and I should behave the same way. Let's look at the text. Philippians 2, verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So we're going we're gonna to pick this apart. Uh, underneath his humility, there's three little points I want to make about his humility and, and three aspects we'll see about his humility in Philippians 2. The first one, there was humility. So his, his, the humanity of Christ was shown in his humility in heaven toward the Father. His hum- humility was in heaven towards the Father. So there the God, Godhead is, Father, Son, and Spirit, pre-existing, eternally co-equal with each other as God. There they are, right? Uh, you start stories out, well, so there I was. This is it. So there Jesus was. The Son was there face-to-face with the Father, face-to-face with the Spirit, in total community, in total uh, intimacy with, the, with himself in the Godhead. So there he was, preexistent and eternal. And then it says, adopt, the same attitude says, who, who was existing in the form of God. There it is. He, there he was, preexistent. And that word form, Bubba mentioned this a little bit. It's really important to understand this use of the word and the, the next use of the word. Paul is, is making sure it's clear. For you and I, we take, take these words of Greek and we, we translate them into English and we're like, well, we need to make sure we see it clearly for what it is. That's why translations are continually adapting and continually even being translated because your language and my language, right, it changes. We don't talk the same and things don't mean the same as they did 20 years ago. They certainly don't mean the same as they did 50 years ago. They certainly don't mean the th- same thing as they did 200 years ago. You read, I mean, I, I read commentaries of old English and we're talking 150 years old. And I am, I'm catching about half of it, right? You have to have a dictionary to r- look up words that you have no idea because you don't use them anymore. The language changes. And as we, as we take, take translations of the, of the word, we're, we're trying to translate what, what the essence of that word was into our language so we understand it clearly. So it's, it's really important. to. That's why it's important to have a, a strong concordance and go look up these words. Uh, if, you, if you have the Blue Letter Bible app, amazing, because you can look this stuff up and, and check it out. The word here, the Greek word for form, is morph. And, and what it, 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 here's what it means. This word form, it's not like he existed in the form of something like a God. Because right? we could take that form, and, and I could use that word in tons of different sentences, meaning different things. But here, form, morph, means the very essence and nature that never changes. So Paul is saying, he says, Jesus Christ, who, existing in the very essence and nature that never changes as God... What's he saying? Jesus is what? God. Nothing else. That is his essence. That is his nature. It never changes. So Jesus, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now this word morph is different than some other uh, words we'll see as appearance or likeness. Morph is, again, the essence and nature of something. So hold on to that. We'll put a pin in that. We'll come back. So from his exalted position as God... Jesus humbled himself and refused to hold on to his divine rights and prerogatives. And this is what, where our mind goes, like, I don't think I can understand this. Remember last week we talked about the Trinity. I'm like, yeah, we, we have these analogies that we use. And we, try to, we try to make it fit, like the egg, it's a shell and a yolk and a, and a white. There's three parts in one. Or the water's a liquid solid gas. It's three in one. They don't do justice, right? And I'm going to give you an analogy that, that works for me, and I can just kind of hold on to it. But it still does not do it justice because this is the, the greatest mysteries of God. So how, here's the question, if God is exalted, and as, if Jesus Christ, the Son, is exalted in a position as God, 
when he humbles himself and, re, and, and he says it's not considering equality with God as something to be grasped or ex, sorry, exploited, what does it mean that he refused to hold on to these divine rights? Did he lose them? No, he did not. He set them aside. He forsook them. Uh, here's the analogy I'll use. How many of you have ever seen the, the TV show Undercover Boss? Is that what it's called? Undercover Boss. Right? Some big C, like 30 of you maybe saw it. The rest of you, there's a CEO of a company, right, or a franchise or whatever. Let's say McDonald's or KFC or Chick-fil-A or whatever. The, the CEO, the, the head honcho, decides, I'm going to go undercover. Right? Most people in their franchise, you go to McDonald's, they don't know what the CEO looks like. But they, they go undercover, so they, they kind of let their beard grow out or they cut it off if they had one or they change the hairstyle, change the hair color. They put glasses on, a hat, and, and they go in for a menial job at these, at these places, the, the, at their, uh, the business. And they go in, the, like they're mopping floors, they're learning how to do it. And they're, they're, their goal in the show, this is where the, the analogy kind of fails, their goal in the show is to, to kind of check it out and see how things are running, see how they can be improved. Uh, are we treating the employees right at this level? Are we, are we not? Are we overlooking something? All of these amazing things, right? Are we providing opportunities for our employees? So they're watching. And, and, and now listen, there are, there are parts of those episodes and shows where the boss is there, right? You're the, he's the boss or she's the boss. Like they, the, the buck stops with them. And there's an employee, maybe a manager or assistant manager, who's, who's treating empl other employees unfairly or who's demanding too much or maybe is not doing good at, at, at uh, public relations with people, uh, that they're treating their customers poorly. And man, I, you can see the frustration on, on, the, on the camera interview aside. They're like, oh, I wish I could break my cover right now. I wish I could just break my cover and say, you're fired. You're done. Get out of here, right? But there's, there's a goal they're trying to meet. To me, it's very similar with Jesus. Those, those CEOs, when they're undercover, they are, I guarantee you they are still getting their pay. I guarantee you they are still in charge. I guarantee you that off camera, they're still taking phone calls for their business because they, they are in charge. Every aspect of their CEO-ness is still intact, right? But they are undercover. They have stooped. They have condescended in order to relate with their workers. To me, it's very similar. And again, that, we can't do that justice. That's just a a starting place, a springboard to, to see the greatness of God in a bigger way. But God, the, the co-equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, coexisted eternally as God from, the, from forever to forever and forever will. And Jesus, who is existing in the very essence and nature and always has as God, decided that equality with God was not something he was going to hold on to. He said, I will submit myself. I will stoop i will humiliate i will humble myself in order to be a servant he didn't say i will let go of all of my godness i will let go of my divinity he did not do that jesus never denied or minimized his deity his divine power and authority were fully intact yet he did not use it for personal advantage see when god in christ took on flesh he willingly suffered the greatest of humiliations he became a person a finite person, flesh and blood. I want to read a couple of different spots here we see in Scripture where you can still see God, God being at work. He's still God, right? Matthew chapter 4, you, we see the temptation of Jesus. The tempter approaches Jesus and says, if you are the Son of God, which means I know you're the Son of God, you know you're the Son of God, you're divine, you're the pre-existing eternal one. So if you are, since you are, here's the temptation. Tell these stones to become bread. If you're hungry, you're God. Make some bread. 
but that wasn't part of the Father's will, was it? Later on, we see in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, you have the, the religious leaders come to arrest Jesus. And in Matthew 26, you see Peter pulls out a sword. He's like, I'm going to town. Here we go. I'm going to defend you. And Jesus says, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. And then just the great, the great passage here. Verse 53. Or do you think that I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, what are you doing? I, I got my own back. I'm God. I can take care of this. Like I, Put your sword away. He goes on and says, how then, if we, if we do this, if the angels come or if you start a fight, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that said it must happen this way? Jesus, God the Son, is humbling himself and saying, Father, I'm going to surrender to your will. I'm going to surrender to the will of the Father, and it has to be done this way. And that's what Jesus does. See, we see his humility and the way he humbles himself in heaven to the Father, and then he comes in and that humility says, God, I, I'll take it, I'll go, I'll condescend, I will take on flesh, I will go to the cross, I will go into humanity and fulfill the will of God. John 17, this is neat too, it, although fully God, he was tempted, right, uh, and, and, but he was without sin, uh, but there were certain aspects of his deity that, uh, that, that he kind of let go of. He didn't, he didn't stop being God, but here's, here's a passage in John 17, and it, again, this is this is really difficult to try to quantify and express perfectly. What we need to know is he is fully God and fully man. He, and although he forsook, gave up the right to some of these deity things we're going to talk about, he, 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 was not, he did not stop or cease being God. Jesus spoke these things, and this is the high priestly prayer. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so the Son may glorify you. Now, in verse 5, it kind of clarifies this. This is, what, this is how Jesus humbled himself and what he gave up of his deity or of aspects of his deity or rights to his deity while he was a man. He says, verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with... Now, here, here's what it's not. It's not the big attaboy from, from God. God, I did everything I could. Now you need to attaboy me and lift me up and exalt me. I was a created being, and now you need to make me even a more special little G God. Like... And we talked about all those different things this morning at Sunday school, right? All those different modalisms and isms and whatever they were in your Sunday school pamphlet. I can't pronounce the words. They're big words, Bubba. <laughs> Man. But he said, he didn't say look for an attaboy. He said, Father, now glorify me in your presence with, with what? With what? The glory I had with you before the word, world existed. See, one of the divine attributes or, or, or aspects of God's, his deity, he set aside was his glory. And now that was seen again, right? We, we see the Mount of Transfiguration, right? In scripture, he takes up some disciples and says, hey, come, come here, I want to show you who I really am. He's like, I, I've been in this body so long, I, I, just, like, I, I need to make sure you know that I'm still fully God. And on the mountain, he's like, right? He's like, Hello. He's this bright, beautiful light, glory of God is shining. So he didn't stop being fully God. He just said, I'm not going to use that for my own advantage. I'm not going to use that for my own prerogatives. I'm going to, I'm going to be here to, to serve. And, and it goes deeper into this in, in just a minute. Uh, what we see is, so we see that he is, his humility is towards the Father. In heaven, towards the Father. I'm going, to, I'm going to humble myself with the Father to do his will. And then the next part we see is his humility in the incarnation, in becoming flesh. 
See, this is the humility that he has. So he set aside his own prerogatives so that he could become a slave. So that he could become a servant of all. The God of the universe who's, who's coexistent with the Father, Son, and Spirit at the same time and, and eternal from, from forever past to forever future decides to take on human flesh and become a servant of all. The King of Kings is now the servant of all. So we see it in his incarnation. Go back to Philippians in chapter 2. We see verse 7. It says, instead, he emptied himself. So we, we saw he existed in the form of God. That form is more the exact essence in nature. And did not consider equality as something to be held on to. He humbled himself. And he says, he emptied himself. And, and, and by assuming the form of a servant. So here's what he, when he emptied himself, it's not like, I'm getting rid of all my divinity. What he says, I'm lowering myself. I'm humbling myself. Assuming the form of a servant. And there are three words here in the next three lines. Form of a servant, taken on likeness of humanity, and when you come as a man. This is what God the Son took on. He took on human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we said he emptied himself. And, and again, building on what he emptied himself of. He emptied himself of divine glory, right? Because he said, I'm going to let my glory go. I'm gonna, the, the, the person, Jesus, humanity has to be present here. So I'm not going to grab onto and exploit this for my own prerogatives although I can still show it, but eventually I'm going to pray that God restores it to me. Then he says, uh, not, only, not only the divine glory, he, he also set aside this attribute, emptied himself of this, his face-to-face divine authority. See, when, when the Son coexisted with the, the Spirit and the Father in heaven from eternity past, they, they each had their own authority as God, unique divine authority, and they were face-to-face in union and community together. And that was a, a unity they shared, that authority and, and discernment was all the same. There was unity about that. When the son decided, I will, I will lay myself down, I will empty myself, I will lower, I will stoop, he no longer had the face-to-face with God the Father or God the Spirit, did he? Although the Spirit strengthened him, although he prayed to his Father for strength, and he submitted, submitted himself to his Father's will constantly. But remember, when he's on the cross and he takes on the wrath of God for our sins, what does he say? God, why have you forsaken me? Why do I no longer have the face-to-face community with God, the Father, and God, the Spirit. Well, because you have stooped into humanity and emptied yourself of divine glory and face-to-face divine authority. He also emptied himself of eternal riches. God, in the form of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, coexisting eternally equal together, have everything they need, and they are the affection of each other's love. They are the object of each other's love. Right? And there's nothing that they need. You know, there, there's, sometimes we get this human-centered worship or Thoughts that, well, Jesus needs me. No, he does not need you. God needs you. God does not need you. God wanted to create an object that he could love, and, and so he could express his glory and love to you and I, and he has done that through the person of Jesus Christ. But he did not need us. And he, could, he wasn't in heaven thinking, man, I really, I'm really lonely here. We have to understand that perspective, right? This is a God-centered relationship that we look at as an example of how we can have a relationship with him as well. The incarnation. He assumed the form of a servant. Again, that form, there's that word again, form, morph. It's the same thing. So the form of a servant, what does that mean? Well, Jesus, who had coexisted with the Father and was eternally God, who existed in the form of God, right? The essence and nature totally has always been of God, now takes on the essence and nature of humanity as a form of a servant. Says, I'm going to be a servant. This is the, the term here is bond servant. It's, it's one that 
Paul uses in reference to himself. I want to be a bondservant, a slave of Christ. I want to be that servant that's, that has freedom to do whatever I want, but I'm willingly submit, submitting and surrendering, surrendering myself to take care of the burdens of my, my, uh, my master's estate or establishment. So when Jesus says, I will be the bondservant, I'm going to take on the form of a bondservant, he is in essence the servant that carries the burdens of those around him. So if a bondservant carries other, bur- other people's burdens, Jesus carried the burden that no other man could carry, the sin burden for all who would believe. Well, what about this emptying himself? We talk about that emptying, that stooping, that becoming a bondservant. Why? Well, in Luke 22, he says this, for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't the one at the table greater? Well, yeah, you think so, right, in a banquet? <clears throat> but he says, I am among you as the one who serves. I'm among you as the one who serves. When Christ emptied himself, so it's so important to get this, it's, it's, it does not mean he quit being eternally God. Uh, all four of the Gospels make it clear that he did not forsake his divine power to perform miracles, to forgive sins, because only God can forgive sins, to know the minds and hearts of people. There were times he was omnipresent and omniscient, right, that he, we saw that in Scripture, we see that in Scripture. He did not stop being God. Had he stopped being God, he could not have died for the sins of the world. How's that work? Well, if Jesus wasn't God, then he was only a man. And if he was only a man, he would have died on the cross for the sins of the world and stayed dead. But that is not what happened. He would have died and remained in the grave with no power to conquer sin or death. But he had to to become man, right? He had to become man. So he's fully God. He had to become man so he could sympathize with humanity and so he could die. So God had to be fully God in order to rise from the dead, but God had to be fully man in order to actually be dead. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet is without sin. Jesus came and in full human form was tempted in full human flesh, stubbed his toe and wanted to say a bad word. This is the carpenter who used hammers, right guys? If you're a construction worker, Jesus understands. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He, Jesus, uh, made, or God, sorry, God, uh, He made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. This is, again, the humanity of Christ, the one that was eternal and coexistent, was now made in human form and flesh in order to take on the penalty that we deserve. It says, so that in Him we might be the righteousness of God. In Him. In Him we might be the righteousness of God. Not in God we might be the righteousness of God, in Jesus Christ. So in order to become the righteousness of God, we have to be in Him who is God. But that same God had to be fully man so He could take on the sin of the world and become sin for us. Why? Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray, in Isaiah it says. We've all turned to our own way. But the Lord, it says, the Lord in Isaiah 53, 6 says, the Lord has punished him. Who? The very human, real, flesh and blood, Jesus Christ. He punished him for the iniquity of us all. The Son was in the flesh. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. You're getting close. You're hanging in there, doing a good job. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 2. <laughs> no, you're not. Like, this is way over my head. Hebrews 2, 
Bubba uh, re- read this earlier in Sunday school too and, and made mention of this on the notes from Sunday school. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. <clears throat> there was some talk about him, him in the unity between brothers and sisters in Christ, and it says, Now since the children have flesh and blood, the children of God, the people that you, like you and I who have trusted in him as Savior, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. So the, here, here we have, we have Jesus who is like us in the flesh. Why? So that he could die. And by dying, he might destroy the power of the devil. Well, how did he do that? Well, and, and go on, verse 15. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives in, uh, in fear of death. So those, those of us who are in fear all of our lives of the consequences of sin should be in fear. But only God who comes in the flesh, only fully God and fully man, can come and have power and victory as he dies. See, Jesus was able to conquer Satan, sin, and death and to free us from the power of fear and death because he is fully God. But he was able to do that because he was fully man and he fully died. Verse 16 says, For it is clear he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, you and I. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make an atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus was the final offering, the final blood offering that was given for our sin. You and I each deserved to be that blood offering on our own on that cross. But God in the flesh, fully God, was fully man and laid his life down for us. Because of our sin, God had to take on flesh. So he, fully God, could die as fully man and conquer death once and for all and give us life. I want to read just a couple things out of these notes. Awesome, Bubba. Thank you for these. Um, There's a chart on one of these pages right there. Really awesome juxtaposition here of of man and and God. And I'm on page four of that. It's on the bottom um, if you have those with you still. So we're going to see the humanity of Christ. I'm going to read through the humanity, how you see he's human. And then show the, see the divinity of, of God, right? The divinity of Christ. Uh, it, it says, he grew weary. Jesus, the man, got tired. Yet, as God, he called the weary to himself for rest. Jesus got hungry, right? But he was the bread of life. He grew thirsty, but in him was the water of life. He was in agony and pain, yet he healed the sick and soothed pain. He grew strong in spirit. He grew up in the Lord as a man. He grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man. Yet he was God and existed from all eternity past and was strong enough to create everything. Uh, he was self-limited in knowledge, just the emptying of himself. Yet he was the wisdom of God. He was omniscient and omnipotent and immutable, eternally God. He prayed, which, Bubba, you talked about. That's only human. That's a human attribute. Only humans pray. Jesus prayed, yet he answers prayers. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, as we should follow in obedience. But it says here that he was declared in baptism, in that time of obedience, the Son of God. He walked, he wept, he dies. But he who died as the eternal, 
can only give eternal life. You see, if, he, if he's not eternal, if he's not preexistent, if he's not God, then there is no eternal life for you and I. Amen? Last point, last section under the point two. We see the humanity of Christ in his humility, in his death, in his death. So verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2, back to that text, it says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. John 10, 17 to 18 says this. This is why Jesus says this. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. How do we know that Jesus was fully man? Well, he had the will to be able to lay down his life. We also know that there was no one that could kill him. No one could put him on that cross without him willingly going to it on his own regard. Jesus laid down his life. He humbled himself and says, I will lay down my life. Matthew says in, in the Gospel of Matthew, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? But to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give his life. He was born to die. He was born to be the Savior of all who would believe. In Galatians, we see Paul write to the Galatian church, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God in the flesh Fully God, fully man, became the curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus knew he had to take the curse. But if Jesus was only a man, the curse would have rested on him and would have never risen again. But he, he rose victoriously, conquering death. Again, I, I want to make sure we understand that this is, this is mysterious in some ways. But for you and I, God, Jesus Christ incarnate, God in the flesh, is fully God, and fully man. And if he wasn't fully God, he couldn't conquer. If he wasn't fully man, he couldn't die. In this act of infinite, awesome, condescension, stooping, right, Jesus left the glory of heaven and the privilege of face-to-face -face community with the Father and Spirit. He willingly emptied himself, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that we might have life. Right? These things are written so that we might believe and that by believing we might have life in his name. I want to close with this passage out of Romans. I thought it was a wonderful way to sum up the mystery of this. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has, ever, who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful to come to your word today and, and for you to be able to open our hearts and to be, receive the word that we have heard. God, we thank you that you've, you've given it to us that we might believe in Jesus, the Son of God, that he is 
both fully God and fully man, and that without his, his full deity intact, he could have not, not have conquered death and sin and Satan. And without his full humanity intact, he couldn't have gone to the cross and bled and died as he did. So we are thankful for that. And although we don't fully comprehend that and, and probably never will until we're face to face with him, we ask that you would increase that in us. Increase the joy of knowing that about Christ. That we would also endeavor to model the humility that Christ has shown with the Father and as he served others even to the point of death. May we serve each other and serve this world well that Christ would be glorified. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> As we close with the song, it's, 